Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Deceiver Illinois Attorney General Republican Erica Harold was the longest of long shots. She was challenging Democratic incumbent Lisa Madigan, considered all but unbeatable. But Lisa Madigan is not running for another term, and it's a different race altogether. This weekend, we'll talk with the attorney and former Miss America about the campaign, her views, and her vision for the office. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Erica Harold is an attorney with a Champaign, Illinois law firm. She graduated from the University of Illinois and earned her law degree from Harvard. In between, she won the Miss, uh, the Miss America pageant in 2003, in fact. It's how she got the money for law school. She used her reign as a platform to speak out against youth violence and bullying. She was inspired, if that's the right word, by her own struggle to overcome bullying in high school. Uh, she may always be known as a former Miss America, but Ms. Harold has made a name for herself as a lawyer specializing in litigation and constitutional law. Uh, she has run unsuccessfully for Congress twice. Well, this August, she launched her campaign for attorney general in a race where the landscape has shifted dramatically. Erica Harold, welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, well, let's talk about that race. Um, you were always poised and confident uh, about your candidacy. Uh, we talked uh, right after you announced it. Uh, but it had to come as a uh, a surprise, presumably a pleasant one, uh, when this became a contest for an, an essentially open seat. The landscape changed dramatically, and I don't think anybody saw that coming. And so I was excited to have already announced my candidacy, to have been gathering momentum throughout the Republican organizations. But instantly it became a competitive race from everyone's perspective. Oh, well... You have uh, the backing of the statewide Republican Party. You had that before uh, Lisa Madigan announced her intentions. So how did the party take it when the stakes in this race seemed to get a lot higher? They did not waver one bit, and that felt remarkably wonderful to have their support and their confidence. They still believed that I would be the strongest general election candidate. Um, you uh, have a primary challenger now. Uh, that's DuPage County board member Gary Grasso. He was the mayor of Burr Ridge for nearly two terms. Uh, so how do you address any notion that uh, that he might have more experience uh, in this political realm than you do? I think the experience that will matter to people is both legal experience, and I started my legal career at Sidley Austin, one of the world's best law firms, and have worked in the field of complex commercial litigation. I also have policy experience that's really important. For the past 10 years, I've been on the board of directors of a group called Prison Fellowship that does prison ministry and advocates for bipartisan criminal justice reform. And I think that that blend of both legal experience and policy experience makes me absolutely the most qualified person for this position. Um, but does not having served as an, in an executive capacity... Uh, where you are commanding an office, um, doesn't that present itself as a bit of a disadvantage? 
I don't think it does because the job of attorney general is to set priorities for an office. There's, there are great lawyers that are working there right now, but your job as attorney general is to decide what the office's priorities should be and to cast the vision. And the vision that I want to cast, first and foremost, is that the office should not be predicated with p- partisan interests, that really the people's interests should be the ones that drive the position. I also think that the office needs to focus on innovation such as criminal justice reform and ways in which we can make better use of our resources. And so I think that that's what people will ultimately ultimately be looking for, leadership and vision, and that's what I would bring to the office. And I'm going to want to uh, explore some of those issues a little bit more in depth, but I want to talk about one issue that's been in the news now. Uh, You've been outspoken uh, about sexual harassment uh, this cascade of pervasive sexual harassment uh, uh, incidents and, and, and cases in the entertainment industry and government as well as a business and, and us in the media uh, must have hit home with you. It absolutely hit home. I had to leave my high school as a result of being the victim of racial and sexual harassment. And like so many women, I've experienced sexual harassment as a professional. And so I was not surprised to hear all of these stories. The only surprise to me was that it took so long for the media to take notice. Um, the bullying that you faced, I, I was fascinated by the, that it, it went as far as death threats and vandalism. It did. It started out just like most sort of adolescent bullying incidents with name calling and teasing and taunting, but it continued to escalate over the course of months. And I, some students would sing songs in school, and the administrators and teachers did not stop them from doing so. We had to call the police to our home several times during that year as a result of vandalism, and I came to school one day to find students standing together actually talking about buying a rifle to shoot me. And it was very difficult to experience that as a ninth grader. I was 13, 14 years old at that time, And the feeling of powerlessness and helplessness that I felt is something that will always stick with me. Now, how do you turn those kinds of feelings? First off, how do you get through them? But how do you turn those kinds of feelings into a mission? I was fortunate because I had a wonderfully supportive family. And they helped to rebuild my confidence and impressed upon me the fact that the things that the students said were not a reflection on me, but a reflection on them. My faith was also something that helped me because I believed that I needed to find purpose to the experience that I had. And so ultimately, I decided to make preventing youth violence and bullying my platform when I was Miss America because I wanted the ability to use that platform to speak into the lives of young people who needed to have someone to give them hope. And I also wanted to challenge policymakers to require schools to have very strong bullying prevention programs. The time that I made that my platform, people still viewed this as just a normal adolescent rite of passage. And one of the questions I would get repeatedly when I was Miss America is, why should we care? Isn't this kids just being kids? And I wanted them to understand kids commit suicide as a result of being bullying, bu- bullied. Kids can't focus on their studies when they're in school and they're bullied. This is far beyond just sticks and stones may break, break my bones. This is a health crisis that we need to take seriously. And what at least appears to be taken seriously now is sexual harassment, the other 
uh, the other arm of uh, of that kind of uh, bullying. Um, most institutions nowadays, with all the attention that it's getting, immediately uh, take a no tolerance position. They order mandatory harassment uh, training, and then, well, you know, I'm not entirely sure what happens after right. that. Um, and and we we really don't know for most places what should be happening after those initial steps are taken. There are a couple of key things that need to happen. I'm sure most people are were aware of that letter that was the anonymous letter that was signed by over 300 people chronicling the harassment in Springfield. And one of the things that I think needs to happen specifically in Springfield is there needs to be an independent inspector in general who is addressing these issues of sexual harassment. Because right now you essentially have members of the legislature passing judgment on their colleagues. And if you are a victim of harassment, you need to feel very confident that your complaint will be taken seriously. And since we saw that the inspector general's position had been vacant for nearly three years, that sent a message of indifference and apathy to victims. In addition to having an independent inspector general, I think it's important that the process itself of adjudicating those claims has much more independence. I think that the ethics commission needs to be expanded to include members of the general public because the accountability needs to not just be to their colleagues, but to the public. And I think it ultimately should be the Illinois Courts Commission that decides whether sexual harassment has occurred and what penalties should exist. And those penalties should not just be monetary fines. The penalties should include the ability to censure or to remove a member who is engaged in egregious conduct. Um, we had the uh, the current IG uh, in on this program a couple of weeks ago, and she pointed out that her power to even decide whether or not she was going to investigate a case is something that has to pass before the Ethics Commission. Uh, the Ethics Commission then says, okay, you can investigate, but she doesn't actually make real recommendations. She only makes her findings and then passes those along. Does it still seem as if it's not being taken completely seriously in Springfield? You hit the nail on the head. When the inspector general has to get permission from the General Assembly to investigate conduct, that's not the type of independence that's needed in order to conduct a full and thorough investigation. And that back and forth is not something that you would see in a normal investigative process. I think it's great that reforms were instituted. Certainly it was important to fill that position. But I think that that is not taking it seriously enough because right now the burden is still on a victim to file a complaint and there still is not the transparency and accountability. But I think another key factor that's not getting enough attention is what needs to be done to change the culture of the pervasiveness of this conduct. And one of the things that has struck me in listening to some of these accounts is the fact that there have been so many witnesses to this behavior, and it doesn't sound like people in real time are saying to their colleagues, don't do that. People seem to have almost a squeamishness about this and think, is it really my place to tell someone not to do something? It's absolutely your place if you're a lawmaker and you see something happening to speak truth to power in real time to your colleague and say, that's unacceptable, you shouldn't do that. 
the burden should not just be on the victim to try to figure out how to fend for themselves. It should be the onus should be upon the people who are standing there and have the real power to make it stop. And I know that some people think, is that really something that we should call upon people to do? But as somebody who's done presentations in schools to children about bullying, we always talk about what is the role of the bystander. And we say to kids, if you see something happening, you should stand up for somebody who's being victimized. If we expect that of kids, we should expect no loss less from lawmakers. Oh. I'm going to move on to another uh, issue that I know is something you care about because you mentioned it when you uh, launched your campaign, and that's corruption. Yes. Now, uh, Attorney General Madigan put uh, great emphasis on consumer protection and advocacy in her years on the job. First off, do you see the state's, uh, the Attorney General's office as the state's top law enforcement job or, or, the, uh, or the state's top uh, consumer advocacy post or something else? I actually see it the way it's defined statutorily and constitutionally. It's the state's chief legal officer. And that matters because as people are running campaigns for this office, you're hearing some people make proposals that don't necessarily fit within the scope of the office. And so you're not the top law enforcement officer. You're the state's chief legal officer. And it's your job to fulfill a host of responsibilities, dealing with charities and trusts, corruption, consumer protection, a host of responsibilities. And it's important to fulfill those responsibilities before expanding it. Uh, but... You've said public corruption is a major focus for you. What can the attorney general do that uh, either more either more than or better than the U.S. attorney can do? The attorney general has specific statutory authority under the State Ethics Act. And under that act, if, serious, if there's evidence of serious misconduct, then the attorney general has the ability to initiate an investigation, has subpoena power, to see exactly what is occurring. And in talking to people during the course of this campaign, just the average person, they want to see an attorney general that is aggressive in pursuing public corruption. When Attorney General Madigan first sought this position back in 2002, she identified public corruption as one of her chief priorities. And I think it's important when you have this sort of a legal platform to be able to use that in a way where you use both the scope of the office's legal tools, but also the en enormous bully pulpit associated with it to root out corruption. Uh, but with public corruption still cropping up in people who you would think would know better, what can you say that, that could actually stop people from doing this or stop people from either trying to get rich or doing other things that are corrupt? Well, the Office of Attorney General does need additional tools in terms of subpoena power and investigative tools to be able to further, further pursue that role. <coughs> <laughs> uh, well, and what kinds of, what kinds of tools are, uh, are needed? Uh, because I know uh, statewide grand juries has been talked about, and they kind of exist, but the rules are very specific. What do you what do you say is needed? I think there needs to be much greater ability to convene statewide grand juries, and there needs to be greater collaboration with states' attorneys. Because part of what I'm doing during the course of this campaign 
is not just coming up with ideas that I think would be effective for the state, but I'm talking to state's attorneys throughout the state to see what kind of interactions they have with the attorney general. And there's a role for the attorney general to collaborate with state's attorneys when there are particular areas of corruption within their county. And that's important because the Constitution and the statutes give concurrent jurisdiction to the attorney general and the state's attorneys in some of these issues. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is Erica Harrell, a Republican candidate for Illinois Attorney General. Uh, she does have one opponent in the uh, Republican primary. Uh, let's talk about, uh, well, maybe uh, House Speaker Michael Madigan, who has come up, at least in Governor Rauner's campaign, uh, a lot. He says Michael Madigan is heading a corrupt system in Springfield. How much do you believe he is either the problem, as the governor seems to believe, or the, a problem? He's a big problem because he's the longest serving speaker in U.S. history and has thwarted the kind of reforms that I think are necessary to move this state forward. If you look at his opposition to fair maps, to term limits, to the way in which the committee rules prevent members from being able to have their bills called for a vote, I think there's too much concentration of power, and that power is not being used in ways that effectuate all of the state's interests. Um, the National Review, uh, a uh, noted uh, conservative publication, called Bruce Rauner the worst Republican governor in America. Well, first off, do you support him, and uh, what do you think of that kind of an assessment? And you're hearing that from uh, the, the conservative uh, uh, wing of the Republican Party. In fact, that's why he has the challenger. I think that the state's problems took decades to create, and it would have been unreasonable to think that any person of any party would have been able to fix all of the problems that plague our state. And so I think he's working hard in order to try to fix the problems in our state. I'm sure that he would have liked to have seen additional reforms happen. But I think that everyone shares some responsibility for trying to get our state moving forward again. Um, the governor is being criticized by some conservatives. And I, we should acknowledge that you would consider yourself as conservative. But I'm not putting you in necessarily in the group that's cons- criticizing him, but for two main things. One, uh, signing a bill that expands state funding for abortions, and also uh, a bill that some people say makes Illinois a sanctuary state. It does limit cooperation uh, with uh, federal uh, immigration authorities by local law enforcement people. What is your feeling about those two things that the governor uh, prominently did. I disagreed with him signing HB 40 and told him that. And I think there's room for disagreement on those issues. And I made no secret of that with him in a conversation that I disagreed with that. I think with respect to the Trust Act, it struck a balance between ensuring that the state was compliant with U.S. Supreme Court precedent as it relates to the detainer issue and ensuring that Illinois state police practices are codified throughout the state. And so the initial version of the bill would not have been something that I could have supported. But in speaking to law enforcement throughout the state, 
they felt that the version of the Trust Act that was actually enacted struck that right balance for them. Um, while we're on the subject of, of, of values and things like that, uh, let's talk about how you meld your own beliefs with the job. Uh, same-sex marriage and uh, protection of abortion rights and some funding are legal uh, right now. Um, do you, first off, do you advocate seeing those things reversed? Um, and how do you balance your views and what you have to enforce? The job of the attorney general is to enforce the law, and that's what I would do. And I would not seek to subvert the law. I think it's very important that whoever assumes that position be prepared to enforce the law as it's written and as our state interprets it right now. Okay. Now I do want to talk about something because, it's a, frankly, it's a favorite subject on this, uh, this program, and that is criminal justice reform. Um, for decades, government has addressed rampant violent crime and uh, with long, well, basically with longer jail terms. Right. <laughs> um, you talk about reforming the system. What is your definition of criminal justice reform? There are, there are some philosophical views I have and then some specific reform ideas. I think philosophically, I think we have to accept the, that just incarcerating people at higher numbers and for longer sentences has failed. It's failed in terms of preventing crime. It's failed in terms of keeping our community safe. And it certainly has failed to give people the opportunity to rebuild their lives after they have served their sentences. And so from a philosophical perspective, I think it's important that we acknowledge that that past practice and perspective has yielded poor results for all of us. From a specific perspective, I think we need to look at rehabilitative measures much more. If you're dealing with nonviolent drug offenses, I think it's important that we look at the role that rehabilitation can play, the use of the enhanced use of drug courts, things like that, as opposed to simply incarcerating people, particularly when you're talking about women, mothers who are caretakers of small children. When you're talking about incarceration, you're talking about separating families. You're talking about more children that are involved in the foster care system. And so I think we have to look at not just the impact upon the person who is being punished, if you will, but on the family as well. And that's not to say that some that simply because someone has children, they should not be incarcerated. But I think we have to look holistically and comprehensively at the effect of all of these sorts of things. Now, the and we have had some reforms and, and Governor Rauner has 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 uh, worked towards uh, this on a number of fronts. But there it's still a tough sell in Springfield. What argument do you make to lawmakers, many of them downstate, uh, who feel that people who say, oh, we need to put fewer people in jail, uh, if these people broke the law, they ought to be punished for it. What argument do you make that you aren't being soft on crime? I think the fact that I'm a Republican making this argument makes me the best person to make it, because politically, it has traditionally been something that was viewed as progressive or something that a Democrat would propose. And I think good ideas come from both parties. And I think as a Republican, it gives me greater credibility with members of my own party to be the one making that argument. And there are a couple of ways I would address 
trying to persuade them. First and foremost, I would make a human dignity argument that it is important that we treat people as human beings and not write people off. I know that some people usually jump to the fiscal argument first, but I wouldn't because I think we have to first and foremost realize we are talking about human beings here. And part of the concept of the sanctity of life is this concept that people have dignity, and I would want to impress that upon people. Secondly, I would talk about the fact that we spend a lot in terms of our corrections budget, and we are not seeing the kind of reductions in crime that we would want to see. We are not giving people the ability, once they have served their sentences, to actually be contributing members of their communities and their families. That's the outcome that we would want to see. We are not getting that with our current practices. And it is a politically sensitive argument to make, but I think you only seek a job like attorney general if you're willing to stand up and try to effectuate leadership in a courageous way. And part of leadership is not just saying what another party or another political figure is doing wrong. It's trying to show leadership within your own party. Um, what other priorities do you have that uh, you want to see either carried out by the office or highlighted in, in this campaign? In, additional, in addition to criminal justice reform and political corruption, I think that the Attorney General's office has the ability to exercise leadership as it relates to the opioid epidemic. That is something that people routinely bring up to me when I am campaigning throughout the state. And it doesn't matter what part of the state. It's something that's affecting people equally. And again, I've been speaking with state's attorneys to find out what are the best practices within their particular counties. Because I think what's happening right now is sort of a patchwork of approaches where people have different task forces, but I want to make sure we don't have a duplication of resources and reinventing the wheel. And so I'm trying to formulate what would be the best practices that are being yielded through state's attorneys throughout the state. And that's an issue that I think is very important. Um, one of the issues that keeps coming up, though, with things like that is that programs for treatment and rehabilitation have been losing funding, both federal funding and, frankly, state funding as well. Um, how do you turn that factor around? We have, obviously, budget challenges, but if we can't invest money in giving people the ability to have treatment, this problem will continue to spiral. It's not The money, though, is not just about prevention and treatment. It's also about things just as practical as making sure that law enforcement, they have the right tools when they are investigating some of these issues. Because I understand some of these substances are highly toxic, and so police officers throughout the state, they tell me that one of their concerns is the testing and the toxicity. They want to make sure that they have the right tools to be able to do their jobs properly. And so this is, this is a very hard issue. It's not one that's going to have an easy answer. Some people would say, sue the pharmaceutical companies. Other people would say, sue the doctors or try to micromanage what's happening within pharmacies. But I think it's we have to have all the stakeholders here to talk about a problem that's very complex and to see what people are willing to do to do their part to solve the problem. Do you think that um, bipartisanship can set in <laughs> in Springfield on an issue like that as it has on some things like criminal justice, general criminal justice reform? 
I certainly hope that it can, because if it can't, we will not be able to solve this. The big, biggest problems in our state require bipartisan solutions. And the opioid epidemic is ravaging across party lines. This is not a partisan issue. So shame on us if we can't move forward in a bipartisan way. Well, I'm going to let that be the uh, the last word here. That is Erica Harold. She's candidate for attorney general. Thank you very much for coming in and spending the Thank half hour. Thank you so much. I appreciate um, it. Well, now to our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, you can visit our website. That is cbschicago.com. Just follow the audio links on the homepage and you will get to at issue at some point, actually in two jumps. Uh, you can also find our podcast on radio.com. Uh, I will be back next week with another edition of At Issue. I can promise you, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I can promise you it's going to be a fascinating discussion, and I hope you will be uh, here to hear it. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. WBBM and HD Chicago, WCFS FM and HD1 Elmwood Park, Chicago. WBBM News Time 958. Traffic and weather together on the 8s. Here's Jim Anderson. Outbound Eisenhower is uh, probably about 42 minutes to Mannheim Road and 55 to Thorndale. I say that as an estimate because uh, we don't have a computed traffic time, travel time yet. They've just reopened the expressway. It's jammed from Oak Park Avenue to Mannheim because of earlier police activity that had the Eisenhower shut down. But all lanes now open on the outbound Eisenhower at Mannheim Road. Get traffic and weather together on the 8s every 10 minutes on News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. The WBBM AccuWeather forecast tonight increasing clouds and cold, a low of 24. A few flurries toward the Wisconsin state line toward daybreak. WBBM News Time 959. Traffic and weather together on the 8s. Breaking news and weather alerts at any time. From the MB Financial Bank Studios, MB means business. This is Chicago's all news station, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM, WBBM. Coming up in the next half hour on News Radio WBBM, fast moving wildfires are continuing to push north in Southern California, forcing thousands of new evacuations in Santa Barbara. More ahead on CBS News. And Chicago has completed its move to equipping every police officer on patrol with a body camera. WBBM Sports. This is Kevin Jackman. The Bears blow out the Bengals 33-7, to a fourth win on the season. The Blackhawks beat Arizona 3-1. to Cubs and Brandon Morrow, a relief pitcher, agree to terms on a two-year deal. And Jack Morris and Alan Trammell elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame by the Modern Era Committee. AccuWeather forecasts increasing clouds with a low of 24. Right now it's 30 at O'Hare, 31 at Midway, and 29 to Lakefront. WBBM News time at the Tone. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.